Take our Bibles and turn to Daniel, the fifth chapter. Daniel, chapter 5. Daniel, chapter 5. Belshazzar, or Belshazzar, if you want to give it a little bit of a, a fancy twist. Belshazzar, the king, made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of the thousand. Father, we pray in your precious name that you would grant to us an understanding of this passage of Scripture that will help us as we leave here today and we live in the light, walk in the light, and love in the light, and as we reflect the light, to an unbelieving world. In your name we pray. Amen. Now, those of you who have been following us in the book of Daniel, notice that in Daniel chapter 1, the Bible says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. You see that? Then over into the second chapter, chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Now in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. Two historical references to Nebuchadnezzar. In chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar is the subject. In chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar is the subject. And in chapter 5, we now have a new king. Belshazzar, the king, made a great feast for a thousand of his lords. Now, I don't want to insult your intelligence this morning. I don't want to do that at all because we're smart enough to know that obviously... The kingship has passed from Nebuchadnezzar to Belshazzar. Right? We would all make that assumption. We'd all claim that to be true. But what I want to do is I want to put this in light of the fact that Daniel is so impeccably careful about his history. God has given Daniel prophecy after prophecy after prophecy. Most of them have yet to come. And he is so impeccably accurate that the unbelieving world of skeptics and critics have jumped on Daniel and put him in their den. Daniel in the critics' den. And they said all kinds of things. They will do anything to pick apart the book of Daniel. For instance, they will look at chapter 1 that talks about Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came into Jerusalem and besieged it. And then go to chapter 4 in chapter 5 in Daniel. Belshazzar king made a great feast and said, See, Daniel doesn't know what he's talking about. Because there were several kings in between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. Now you and I know the technique. The technique is let's tell the truth 
but let's not tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Let's just share partial information. And the skeptic knows, the critic knows that you and I don't know the whole story. The critic knows that it's probably very unlikely that the average person is going to read Daniel chapter 1 and Daniel chapter 5 and understand that there are several kings in between, but they're insignificant. They've only, they only ruled a couple of years or more. There's about four of them. And then in chapter 5, we have Belshazzar the king, who then ultimately succeeds Nebuchadnezzar. And what they will do is they will take a look at anything they can to pick apart the book of Daniel, such as chapter 5, verse 2, which says that while he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and silver vessels which his father, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from Jerusalem. Now, i got to tell you something. One thing I love about the English language is we have the word father and we have the word grandfather. And we have the word great-grandfather. They didn't do that back in those days. If you said that Nebuchadnezzar was your father, you could mean your father, your great-grandfather, your great-grandfather, or your great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather. You could go back as far as you want with the word father. There was no word for grandfather. Oh, but the skeptics, counting on the fact that you and I don't know any better, counting on that fact will say, wow, Belshazzar the king's father was Nebuchadnezzar. There were several kings between them, and Nebuchadnezzar could not have been his father. I tease my kids all the time about being a grandfather. I say to my grand, I even say this to my grandkids. I say, you know what? Your dad is just a father to you. I'm a grandfather. I'll say that to my grandkids. And not only that, but guess what? You're just a son to him, but to me, you're a grandson. But that's what they will do. But that's what they will do. But I want, you to, I, I want you to understand that if this were an academic setting, supposing, supposing I were enrolling in, enrolling in college, and um, I decided to take an ancient history course, and I'm, I'm not big on history, and I don't know history very, very well. And so I, I go to college, and I sit in my ancient history class, and the professor gets up in ancient history, and he says, well, we're going to talk about the Neo-Babylonian Empire. You know, that empire that Nim, Nimrod got started way back in the book of Genesis, and it fell apart, and now it's back again with Nebuchadnezzar II. And Nebuchadnezzar has made Babylon now the best nation on the face of the Babylon, the best nation. The city of Babylon is the richest nation. It's where everybody comes. It's where everybody does commerce. It's where everybody, everybody gravitates to for all of what's happening in the world. They're coming to Babylon. And the professor then says to you, he says, well, he says, you know, he says the Bible talks about Babylon, but uh, the Bible is wrong 
Because the Bible says that Belshazzar, the king, made a great feast for a thousand of his lords. And that very night, in verse 30, Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, was slain. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom. He's a new ruler. He, can, he, he, he overthrows the Babylonian kingdom. And now the Medes and the Persians are in control. And he says to the class, he says, well, listen. He says, Belshazzar was not the last king of Babylon. Nabonidus was. Now, if you go back into all of the classic historians of the Old Testament and the time between the Old and the New Testament, and you read them, Thucydides, and you read um, um, uh, all of uh, uh, Herodotus and Xenophon and all of those guys, none of them mention Belshazzar as being the last king of Israel, of, of, uh, of Babylon. None of them do. So I understand where, um, where, where academia comes from to a degree. I understand it to a degree. But here's the thing that you and I need to keep in mind. The Bible needs to be treated as history like any other book. You can't come to the Bible and say, well, the history of those secular historians is better than the history of the Bible. You can't do that. In fact, you and I need to come to the conclusion that the Bible is the best history you're going to find anywhere. The Bible is going to be right when other history books are wrong. Because it is God's Word. The Bible, we ought to have so much confidence in the Bible that when we see problems in history or contradictions in history, we're going to say, I don't know what to make of that, but I know that the Bible has to be true. And so you and I need to make sure that that's the way we feel and believe because there's no way in the world you're ever, going to, you're ever going to put in all the details between every name and every nation and every event that there is in ancient history. But you and I need to have confidence in God's Word. Someone once said to when... Um, when what's-his-name was on the, during the Scopes trials of the 30s, I believe it was, when Williams Jennings Bryan was on, on the, on the uh, witness stand, one of the prosecutors, they tried to make fun of creationism. And in trying to make fun of creationism, they would just, uh, just do all kinds of antics. And, and, and one of the attorneys, I think it was Clar Clarence Darrow, who got up and looked at Williams Jennings Bryan and said, hey, uh, listen, the Bible... Do you really believe that, um, um, that Jonah was swallowed by a whale? And he says, yes, I do. And um, other things. But the point, the point is that it got so bad as far as the, the nature of the interrogation that Williams Jennings Bryan, I believe, said to the, uh, the prosecuting attorney, 
Listen, I want to tell you something. If the Bible would have said that Jonah swallowed the well, I would have believed that. I mean, that's how ridiculous it was. Do you understand what I'm saying? You and I, you, now it's time probably for you to use this. Every three years or so, I try to use this illustration to kind of see where we are with this because there's always someone in the congregation who never heard this story. You remember the pastor who went to the Sunday school class and said to the Sunday school teacher, could I, could I give your kids a test? And the Sunday school teacher says, yes, you can give my kids a test. So he walked into the classroom. He stood in front of this class of boys, and he said to the boys, I got a question for you guys. Who tore down the walls of Jericho? Silence, total silence. Nobody said a word. After a minute, one of the boys in the back raised his hand and said, I didn't do it. And, this, and the pastor was just absolutely, he couldn't believe what he heard. And so he said to the Sunday school teacher, can I talk to you for a minute out in the hall? And he went out in the hall and he said to the Sunday school teacher, why am I getting this kind of response from this boy? And the Sunday school teacher says, well, I don't know. He comes from a very good home. And uh, it's a well-ordered home. And uh, they're not known for, the kids aren't known for being doing this kind of stuff. And if he said he didn't do it, he didn't do it. And so the pastor was very, very concerned. He went to the Sunday school superintendent, and he said to the superintendent, he says, hey, what's going on that this is the kind of an answer we're getting? And the superintendent says, I don't know. I concur with the Sunday school teacher. And if the boy said he didn't do it, he didn't do it. And so he takes it to the board. And uh, there are the members of the board, and he explains to the board that he did this test in the class, and this kid raised his hand and said, I didn't do it. And the pastor said to the board, now what are we going to do with this problem? And the board thought about it and thought about it and thought about it and then says, well, I don't know, pastor. We know the family very, very well. We can't imagine that he would have done anything like this, but I'll tell you what, we'll go ahead and pay for it. <laughs> now, believe it or not, skeptics will often use the most frivolous things to try to trip us up, to try to get us to look at God's Word and say, you know, I, I don't know whether I can totally trust God's Word. I'm not sure I can do that. And so there was a skeptic, a critic, who went up to a, a Christian, from my understanding, this is a true story, and said to the Christian, doesn't the Bible say that the ark was about three stories high? yes. Well, doesn't the Bible say that it was about 450 feet long, depending upon the size of a cubit? And the, yes. And about 75 feet wide? Yes. And so the critic said, well, I gotcha. How is it possible then for the priest to carry it across the Jordan River? Think about that. Now, a little scary. I'm not getting a lot of laughs. I don't know what that means. But let's take Belshazzar for just a second. I don't know if you're aware of this, but until, 1855, until 1853, nobody knew there was a Belshazzar except Daniel in God's Word. But guess what happened in 1853? In 1853, we were digging around Babylon, and we were finding some inscriptions 
and one inscription on a cornerstone. And in the description on the cornerstone, we found Belshazzar's name mentioned for the very first time. Since that time, and by the way, let me just read you one or two, just so you know I'm not twisting anything here when I say this to you. And since that time, we have found inscriptions on several buildings. We have found cuneiform documents, and there's even a Persian verse account of Belshazzar. Here's one great example. Quote, I'm quoting from ancient history now. Life for long days give as a gift to me. And as for Belshazzar, my firstborn. Who's writing this? Belshazzar's father, Nabonidus. And as for Belshazzar, my firstborn, the offspring of my body, may the reverence for thy great Godhead be placed in his heart. May he not contract sin. May he be sated with the fullness of life. Now, Nabonidus is praying to a false god when he says that. But nevertheless, for the first time in history, we discovered that there was a Belshazzar. Should have believed it all along. We should have said, you know, God knows what he's saying. You should have believed it all along. And then after that, we began to find other, other references to Belshazzar. Now, here's the point. Here's the point. When we say Belshazzar was the king of Babylon and the last king of Babylon... The thing that you and I need to know from history is that Nabonidus, his father, wasn't real serious about being a king. He and his son reigned for 17 years. He said to his son, you reign in Babylon, you take care of the army, you take care of the finances, you do whatever you want, I'm going to roam the kingdom. And that's what his dad did. His dad roamed the kingdom and when his dad roamed the kingdom, he went to Tima, for instance, and he built himself a nice palace there. And so you can see where Belshazzar is actually the one who is in charge in place of his father. In fact, let me just say this to you. We didn't get there yet, but let me just say this to you. Do you remember this famous chapter is all about the handwriting on the wall? And this chapter is about the very night that Babylon is going to be destroyed by the Medes and the Persians. And you'll remember, you'll remember the, the uh, what do we call it, the quid pro quo that the Babylonians offered to Daniel? If he could interpret the handwriting on the wall... Remember what, the, what Belshazzar said to him? If you can do the handwriting on the wall and you can interpret it for us, guess what? We, I will make you the third ruler in the kingdom. Verse 16. And I have heard of you, when he talks to Daniel, they brought Daniel, Daniel uh, nobody else could interpret this dream. They brought Daniel and, and Belshazzar says, well, I've heard of you. I heard that you can interpret things and, and explain enigmas. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck, and you shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. 
Skeptics have looked at that for years and said, what on earth is he talking about? You'll be the third one in the, in the kingdom. It should be second, shouldn't he? But you see, they didn't know before 1853 that there was a, a, a Belshazzar, you see. And so the point is that Belshazzar can't say second because he's second. His dad is first, he's second, and so Daniel has to be third. Well, having said that, it is critical for you and I, it is critical for you and I to understand that why Daniel is placed into the, lie, the critic's den, he's there because he's so impeccably right in his history and in his prophecies to come. They're just tremendous. We'll look at a couple of those, obviously, before we finish the book of Daniel. And then the thing you and I need to keep in mind is that Belshazzar, we are seeing here the transfer of power in the first prophecy that Daniel gives to us. Now, Nebuchadnezzar reigned for 45 years or so. Then you had four other kings, and they were just uh, there. Only one, or one, one of them is mentioned in the Bible. The other, the other ones are so insignificant. One, one reigned only several months. And then you have Nabonidus and then Belshazzar reigning together. But you remember back in Daniel chapter 2 when Nebuchadnezzar had this dream of this image. Go back to Daniel chapter 2 for just a moment. In Daniel chapter 2, you'll remember he had this great dream, this image, this image that he dreamed of where the head was made of what? Everybody together. Gold. The shoulders and arms were made of what? Silver. The chest and the, and, and, and the trunk was made of what? Bronze. And the legs was made of iron and the toes were made of iron and clay. You remember that dream? It's been about 70 years now. All of these rulers have ruled, and now it's the end of Belshazzar's 17 years of reign with his father. And the Bible says that when Daniel explains that dream, he says to Belshazzar in chapter 2, verse, 39, verse 37, You, O king, are a king of kings. For the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, he has given them into your hand and has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. But after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours. And that's the kingdom that is now taking over in Daniel chapter 5. And when the Bible says in Daniel chapter 5 that that very night Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, was slain. Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Notice the details, the historical details. It happened just exactly the way Daniel describes it. Now you know the story. I would love to read it to us, but the, de the story is that Belshazzar made a great feast of a thousand lords. I love banquets. I love feasts. I, I, just, I just love them. How many love a feast? How many love a banquet? It could be a Thanksgiving dinner with all of your, all of your family. It could, be, it could be a wedding reception. It could be, and we just love, people love feasts. And so 
Belshazzar gave this feast, but this feast was no ordinary feast. It really ended up being a drinking party. Because that's all he talks about. He doesn't describe the menu. He doesn't describe just exactly what everybody was doing and how much, uh, how much fun they were having. and everything. All he talks about is the, is the drinking party that's going on here. And in verse 2, the Bible says that Belshazzar gave command to bring all of those vessels, the golden vessels that had been made for the temple of Jerusalem that had been sacked by the Babylonians, taken to Babylon, You'll remember that Belshazzar said, bring them over to the dinner. Bring them over to the dinner. We're going to use them in our drinking party. And you'll remember that while they're sitting there and they're just carousing and they're drinking and they're having a good old time, you'll remember that there is this hand that begins writing on the wall. And i got to tell you, as they're drinking and as they're praising the gods of wood and stone, verse 5 says, In the same hour the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the queen, when the king saw it, his countenance changed. He was starting to have a panic attack. I think he had a full-blown panic attack in verse 6. Notice what it says. The king's countenance changed. His thoughts troubled him so that the joints of his hips were loosened and his knees knocked against each other. And the king cried out loud. I mean, he is beside himself. He says, we got to know what's going on here. And he called for all of the soothsayers and all the wise men of Babylon and all of these heathen wise people who used astrology and soothsaying to determine what was going on in that day. And, and they come in and they say, well, we can't figure it out. We can't figure it out. And the queen comes over, and the queen says to Belshazzar, that would not have been his wife at this point, that would have been his, probably Nebuchadnezzar's widow. And the queen comes over and says, oh, don't worry about it. There's a guy in this kingdom who can give you the interpretation of that dream. Daniel. And so Belshazzar calls for Daniel, and Daniel comes in and he talks about Nebuchadnezzar, and he says, listen, I want you to know something. When he comes in and he talks about Nebuchadnezzar, he says, listen, I want you to know something. Nebuchadnezzar was in your shoes at one point. Nebuchadnezzar felt that he was the one who was responsible for all of the country of Babylon to the point where he could not listen to anything that God said about who he was. And so in verse 21, to make a long story short, you'll remember that Daniel said to Belshazzar that he was driven from the sons of men. That was the last chapter, remember? We remember that Nebuchadnezzar had temporary insanity for a while. He was driven from the sons of men. His heart was made like the beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys, they fed him with grass like oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven. And then what does it say next? Everybody together, New King James, it'll be word for word identical, till he knew that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints over it whomever he chooses. How many times in Nebuchadnezzar's life did God have to come to him and says, well, listen, this is going to happen until you come to the conclusion. 
that I'm in charge. Three things he indicts him for. In verse 22, he says, number one, Belshazzar, you've not humbled your heart. You're unlike, you're unlike Nebuchadnezzar. You've not humbled your heart. And look at what it says in verse 22. Although you knew all this. I'm not telling you something you didn't know. You knew this. Why are you acting so dumb about it? You knew this stuff happened. And even though you knew it happened, you didn't learn from your father's grandfather, great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather. You didn't learn from your father's mistakes. You have to learn from your own. You know what we say about young people. I was there once, too, and it was said to me as well. Young people cannot learn from other people's mistakes. They've got to learn from their own. You can't look ahead. That's what they say. Now, listen, I, I believe better of, you, of those of you who are young. I believe better. We can learn from other people. I mean, that inspired me back when I was told that. That inspired me to learn from other people's mistakes. And, but here, here's Belshazzar. He can't learn from somebody any else's mistakes. He has to learn from his own. He's, he's a good candidate for what we call the crazy cycle, right? <laughs> All right. The second thing he was indicted for, and i got to move on now. The second thing he was indicted for, verse 23, And you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and you have brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines, have drunk wine from them. So number two, he is being very sacrilegious. Now what does that mean? He's taking these vessels that had been dedicated to the temple, and he's using them in his drinking party. And he's demeaning God. He's dishonoring the Lord. He's desecrating these. He's blaspheming. And his attitude is one of impiety and contempt the whole time. Now, how do you like that for my definition <laughs> of being sacrilegious? And then number three, the Bible says that you've praised in verse, uh, verse 23... You praise the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear. Now, to Nebuchadnezzar, he said, till you know that God is in control. What does he say to Belshazzar? And the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways, you have not glorified. Brady, take a breath. Oh, you think you just did that on your own. No, no. Bible says you're Job, he's in trouble. He's having all kinds of difficulties. I think it's in chapter 12. He says, listen, the breath of every man is in God's hands. When Paul talks in Athens chapter 17, great passage of Scripture. We had it in Sunday school the other day. When he talks to an unbelieving world, he talks to how do you, how do you win pagans to the Lord? How do you share the gospel to pagans? Well, Paul said, listen, Listen, we are all the offspring of God in one sense, and we live and move and have our very being in Him. Well, anyway, having said that, the applications are pretty clear. The applications are pretty clear, and I've got to close with this now. That very night, in verse 30, once that handwriting came on the wall, and Daniel interpreted the handwriting, and the handwriting was, verse 26, God has numbered your kingdom. Yes, that God does that. He's numbered your kingdom. Your kingdom is only going to last as long as God says it's going to last. You have been weighed in the balance and found wandering. 
your kingdom is one of despicable iniquity and uh, vile wickedness. And number three, because of that, in verse 28, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And Belshazzar tried to follow through on that quick, you know, I'm just using this because it's, it's a big thing today. You know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Do a favor for me, I'll do a favor for you. And so Belshazzar tried to do that quid pro quo. And so he gave the, Daniel the purple and the chain of gold around his neck and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. Well, Daniel already had rejected that, but it didn't matter. But anyway, having said that, what happens next? What's the very last thing we read in verse 30? That very night, Babylon is destroyed. Now, I, I can't read the account, but Herodotus, who is a classic historian, gives to us the account of the destruction of Babylon. He's not the only one who does that. But I find a couple of things interesting as we read this account of Babylon being destroyed, and I just want to bring it to your attention. Again, these are not my words. These are the words of Herodotus, Herodotus the historian, Greek, highly regarded. In fact, he's often said to be the father of real history because finally we got a historian who is being honest and fair. All right, Cyrus, having thus stationed the bulk of his army near the passage of the river where it enters Babylon. This is the night that they're carousing. And again, having stationed another division beyond the city where the river makes its exit, gave orders to his forces to enter the city as soon as they should see the stream fordable. Having thus stationed his forces, Forces And given these directions, he himself marched away with the ineffective part of his army. And having come to the lake, Cyrus diverted the river by means of a canal into the lake, which was before the swamp. He saw the swamps out there and he says, you know what? We can divert the river into the swamps. The water can dissipate across the land. And we can march into the city. When this took place, the Persians who were appointed to that purpose close to the stream of the river, which had now subsided to about the middle of a man's thigh, entered Babylon by this passage. It is related by the people who inhabited this city that the Babylonians who inhabited the center knew nothing of the capture, for it happened to be a festival. But they were dancing at the time. And enjoying themselves. And thus Babylon was taken for the first time. And in a modern, modern calendar, it would have been October the 11th, 539 B.C. When the Medes and the Persians slipped beneath the wall of Babylon and put Belshazzar to death. Now, one other point that I want to make. Daniel talks about it, too. God's Word is so exciting. I'm not Daniel. Daniel talks about Isaiah. 100 years before this happens, talks about Babylon. And there's going to be a night when they're drinking and they're they're carousing around. And guess what? The water is going to stop flowing and they're going to be destroyed. Isaiah. 
Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah was written at the same time, same period. Jeremiah is Daniel's pastor. Fifty years ago, Jeremiah wrote about all of this. And 50 years ago, in, in the very last chapters of Jeremiah, and I just want to get this out to you because this is incredible. God's Word is so accurate. In Jeremiah 51, we have a description in 50 and 51 of the destruction of Babylon. And in verse 28, what does it say? Prepare against her the nations with the kings of the what? Medes. We know it's going to be the Medes. Next verse of Scripture, verse 36. I'm just picking and choosing. I can't go over all of this. Verse 36, therefore thus says the Lord, behold, I will plead your case and take vengeance for you. I will dry up her sea and make her springs dry. Verse 39, in her excitement I will prepare their feasts. I will make them drunk that they may rejoice and sleep her perpetual sleep and not awake. That's this incredible prophecy that God has given to Jeremiah 50 years you got to remember, Babylon was a city where the walls were so thick that nobody thought anybody could penetrate them. That is why that very night, the watchmen are on the walls. They see the army of the Medes out there. They've been coming. They've been there for months. Nabonidus, Belshazzar's father, had already been captured four months before this time in another location. And there's the army out there. There's the army out there. And because their walls are so thick and the city is so, the walls are so high and impenetrable, they don't think anything can happen. But God said to Jeremiah, who writes in Israel during the time of the captivity, guess what? It's going to happen. I have a final application. The applications are pretty clear as far as the sacrilege and as far as the uh, praising things and idols instead of the God who has created us. And but here's my final thought. The enemy is at the gate and they still do nothing. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're the sovereign ruler of the universe. We take great comfort in that and we know lord that you have a plan and purpose our prayer is that your kingdom will come your will will be done in earth as you have planned it in heaven and so lord when we come and we look at this kind of a passage of scripture we see the fallacies we see the mistakes that are made in an unbelieving nation in a world of unbelief where you are not considered to be in charge. Lord, the remedy was so simple. You gave it to them many times over, but they refused to accept it. Lord, I pray that you would help us in this day and age in which we live to realize that when the enemy's at the gate, we need to take it seriously. In Jesus, your most precious name, we pray as we come to you to seek our guidance and our strength in your everlasting power and strength. Thank you. In your name, amen. Let's all stand together, 73. And as we sing our closing song of invitation, I've been looking through the book of Daniel trying to, trying to find ways that we are to live in an unbelieving world. 
And in this unbelieving world in which we live, how do we share the gospel with unbelievers? What do we say? Uh, how do we approach Christ? How do we deal with our fear? How do we deal with our apprehensions? Because it just seems like the world is against us. That's the way it seems. And yet greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Just share the gospel. Share the gospel. Jesus died for sin. He paid the penalty for sin. He is willing to forgive you of all of your sin through his personal death on the cross if you but come to him and receive him as Savior. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, that chorus, as we close the service this morning.